Lord, we just come before you and we thank you for the opportunity to study your word and to gather together and just fellowship. We ask you to guide and lead your spirit to be upon us as we look at this section and follow your word. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing in Acts 5. And we looked at the beginning of this that uh, we had the story of Ananias and Sapphira trying to lie to the church and God killing both of them because of their lie. And the church grew. We had the fact that they were meeting in the temple. And it started drawing the attention of the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. And we are going to see the little bit of jealousy they're having. Um, people are getting healed. And even to the place where they were trying to put people so just the shadow of the disciples would cross over them and they would be healed. And we're going to look today at the response of the high priest in the Sanhedrin. Verse 17. Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation. And they laid hands on the apostles and put them in a common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go, stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. And when they had heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest came, and they that were with him, and called the council together. And all the senate of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. And when the officials came and found them not in the prison, they returned and told, saying, The prison truly we found shut with all, with all safety, and the keepers standing without before the doors. But when we had opened, we found no man within. And when the high priest and the captain, captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. Then came one and said, Behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then went the captain of the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. We're going to stop there. <laughs> so here we have the disciples. They're gathering a big church. We've had 3,000 get saved the first day. We've had 5,000. We're sitting somewhere around 10,000 people. And are every single person standing at the temple, we don't know. That would be a huge crowd. But the crowd is big enough that it has drawn the high priest's attention. And it says, the high priest rose up, and they that were with him. And the group that is with him is the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees are half of the group of major players in this time. You have the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees do not believe in the supernatural. They do not believe in miracles. They do not believe in the resurrection. They are really just realist. They have, they have cooperated with Rome a lot. They're, they're, they're pragmatic. They say, Rome's going to give us power. We've given, we're, we'll give up what we need to to have power that Rome will give us. This is the group that this is siding with the high priest right now. The Pharisees, on the other hand, are more the religious side. They believe the Bible. They believe in miracles. They believe in resurrection. They are looking for the Messiah to come. The Sadducees don't believe in the Messiah because they don't believe in the prophecies. They don't believe in anything to do with God. So we have two very strong political groups coming together and religious groups because they have them together. So they high priest and the Sadducees were filled with indignation. How can these guys be teaching in our temple? They look at the crowds they're growing. And remember, we told you that uh, the average 
uh, rabbi in there is only having a school of 30, maybe 100 people if he was really, really, really good. And these guys are drawing thousands. And they're looking at them and saying, and we talked about this, you know, they thought they got rid of all of this problem with the miracle worker, talking about the authority of the Bible when they got rid of Jesus. Now there's 11 of them teaching. Okay? And maybe more because they tried to use Matthias and, and, uh, and um, the other guy, I can't remember, Matthias was the one they chose. Huh? No. Uh, to be the, to be the 12th, be, be the 12th disciple. Uh, so there's got this big group and there's leaders being raised up from these other people that are, that are coming along. And so they go in and it says in verse 18, they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. Whatever prison that was at the time, they put them in the prison behind the barred, barred doors and all of this, put guards on them, just, just as our prisons are today. You put them in prison and you put a guard on them. Now, this wasn't a special prison. It wasn't the one-on-one. It wasn't solitary. They put them in the regular, everyday prison, waiting for the trial for the whole Sanhedrin. And it's kind of funny because it says that night, verse 19, but the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison drawers and brought them out. Now, this is an amazing thing that God did. They put the disciples in the prison and that night then the angel came up woke them up probably and said and walked them out of the prison now how this happened did he put the guards to sleep did he just blind the guards we don't know we just know that the angel came in and walked them out of the prison and you can imagine the chaos that's going to happen the next morning when they go to look for the prison prisoners uh, having worked out of the prison, I, I kind of understand what that would be. You lose 11 prisoners overnight, and you're going to be panicking. Uh, and here we see this process. They're losing at least 11 prisoners, and 12 if they include Matthias. And they're told, very interesting, they said, now when you get up in the morning, and when you go out, go to the temple and start teaching. All right, you've just been arrested at the temple, thrown into prison, or, or jail in this case, and the next morning you go right back to the temple to preach. And you, know, you want to find your, find your escape prisoners real easy. That made it about as easy as you could find find your escape prisoners. They show up right at the same place that they were, going, where they were arrested and where they're going to be tried, at the temple. What was God trying to say? I'm powerful. I'm powerful. My people are going to be bold. How many times, you know, and most of us, if we were told to go back to the temple, probably said, uh-uh, I'm not going back to the temple. I'm not going back to jail. They'll just arrest me and throw me back into jail or worse. And yet the disciples said, okay, angel. I love the attitude of the disciples. Every time they got the beating, every time they had problems, they thanked God that they were found worthy of suffering. And, you know, this is something that we need to get into our attitudes in, in life. That when God sends suffering, he's got a reason for it. He's got a plan for it. And we really do need to be thankful. As Paul tells us in, the, in Thessalonians, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of Christ Jesus in you. 
And the key word there is in everything, and the Greek word there means everything. All right? doesn't mean some things, doesn't mean part of things, doesn't mean most things, spiritual things. It means everything. And so they went into the temple in, early in the morning and taught. So as soon as the sunrise was up, they're in the temple teaching again. Uh, how, they, how everybody knew that they were supposed to be there, I don't know. Maybe they just showed up in case one of the, one of the followers showed up. But the people showed up and they had people to teach. But the high priest came, and, and they that were with him, that's the Sadducees, remember, and they called the council together. This is another word for the Sanhedrin. They called the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin is 70 members. They make up the Supreme Court of Israel at that point in time. Whenever there was a trial, the Sanhedrin would be called, and the 70 of them would make their decision. And so that when they all gathered together, they sent to the prison to bring the prisoners out. All right? And this would be just what we do today. We court is, court's getting ready to come in session. You send out the clerk to go, to go to the holding cell to bring the prisoner in. And verse 22, And when the prisoners came, they found him not in the prisoners, and they returned and told, saying, The prison truly we found shut with all safety, and the keepers standing without before the doors, but when we had them open, we found no man within. This is a panic moment for the person that's standing guard. All right? If you lose your prisoners, in the Roman point of view, you would be executed. I'm not quite sure what the Jewish thing was, but you're going to be disciplined no matter what. You lost your prisoners. And... They, and, the, and it's so funny when you look at it. We came to the prison. All the doors were locked. All the guards were standing there where they're supposed to be standing. And we went in. We opened the door where the prisoners were supposed to be. And nobody was there. Uh, you can know that heads are starting to be looked at. Uh, how did you lose your prisoners? Did you leave your post? Did you sleep on your post? Uh, and... In the military, all militaries, even to this day, if you leave your post or you're found sleeping on your post, the sleeping on post is still executable. Usually they don't during the non-war, but if you fall asleep on post at the war, it's an executable offense. And if you leave your post, you're absent without leave, and you will end up in the prison. So these guys are all in a panic. Where did these guys go? Because they were, at, they were on post. When, when they led these people in, they fully expected to find prisoners in that prison. And they found nobody. And the guy goes up to the, goes up to the court and says, uh, we don't know what happened, but there's no prisoners in the prison, or no prisoners in this jail that we were supposed to bring back to you. You almost have to think these guys are trembling. The judges are like, their, their first aspect, remember, because most of these guys are the Sadducees, they're, they're thinking, okay, who left post? How did this happen? The Pharisees are willing to accept that it's a miracle of God, but they're still going to think the first thing first, just as we would. All right, 11 guys escaped. Who bribed the, who bribed the guards? Who, you know, who opened the gates? Who, who did these things? Nobody's really looking to miracle as their first answer. And then we look, and while they were still there, in verse, verse 24, 
And when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these sayings, they doubted whereunto this would go. So they were looking at it and going, all right, here we go, another problem. They had already lost one body. You know, several months ago, no more than a year ago, they have lost a body of an executed prisoner that they were guarding. Now they've lost all the disciples <laughs> from their prison. Can you imagine when we're, if word got out about this, how confidence is going to be shaken about their leaders? Our leaders can't keep a body in a grave. They can't keep prisoners in the jail. Just as we would be looking at our, you know, our leaders. You lost how many people in jail? How did this happen? Are you guys totally incompetent? So this is not good for their political aspirations. And remember, the high priest is a political person at this time. He's not appointed by the religious leaders the way he's supposed to be. He is, a, he is accepted and appointed by Rome. He has to be a priest. There are certain rules that they do give him. But Rome is the one that's determining this. The Sadducees don't believe in miracles anyway. And they're already struggling with the fact that this body disappeared from the grave and everybody says he rose again and that people said they saw him and they had to bribe the guards and then remember the, the bribe would not have been just the guards. It would not have been just the Roman guards. They'd had to bribe the, the officers and then they'd had to bribe their officers and then they'd have to get up to the governors. This cost them a lot of money to hide Jesus. Now all of a sudden they come and and their, their entire group of prisoners has disappeared. And this is not going to look good for them. And I'm just trying to set the stage. You know, there's, there's a political reality behind this. It would, just be, it would be just like if 12 prisoners disappeared from the jail or the prison. The warden would probably be terminated or at least highly reprimanded. Some guards would be terminated. Uh, there'd be a lot of issues going on. These guys are in that same boat. But while they're yet talking, <laughs> they're getting the report. They're trying to figure out what they're going in verse 25. Then came one and told them, Behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. You know, this has to make them feel really strange. All right, we put them in prison. They escaped from prison. And the first thing they do is come back to the temple. They're going to think that these guys are insane. And from a human perspective, they are acting in an insane manner. You go right back to the place that you were arrested and start teaching. That's what God told them to do. And God's going to make a point before them to the people because of the boldness of his disciples. It is an amazing thing because we look at the disciples just months earlier totally not recognizing that Jesus has spent years telling them he's going to go to Jerusalem and die on the cross and be resurrected. He spent the entire week before that telling them this week I'm going to die. And I'm going to die on Passover and I'm going to be resurrected in three days. And they still didn't believe him. And when he is arrested, they all run and hide for the most part. John and Peter kind of hang around. Peter denies him three times, denies knowing him three times during that night, just as Jesus said he did. And of course we know that Peter denied him to the big brutes of the guards and all these. No, he denied him to 
the slaves. And the last one was a young maid, probably just a little girl. And he denied knowing Jesus. Not to the big brutish guards who might arrest him, but to the servants. And he denies knowing Jesus and his, you know, big, brave Peter, I will die for Jesus. And just a couple hours ago, he was being brave. He took out a sword and was ready to fight the entire contingency that came to arrest Jesus. And Jesus said, put your sword away, Peter. Now, we don't think Peter was that great a swordsman. I think he was trying to take Malchus's head off, and all he did was take his ear off. Uh, but, you know, Jesus said, put it away. He, he, he was not a swordsman. He was a fisherman. All right? And he, told, he was told, put it away. And all of a sudden now, he's totally confused. The disciples did not understand Jesus being a dying Messiah. They understood that he was going to come and he was going to get Rome off their back and Israel was going to be the center of the world and everybody was going to worship in Israel and Israel was going to be the, the dominant country. And when Jesus is arrested and he tells them to put their weapons away because they never understood, it really did scare them. We have put our hands and fate in the wrong Messiah. He's going to die. He is not getting rid of Rome. He is not going to build an army. And now we see them just a couple months later preaching in the temple, being arrested, put in jail, getting released, and preaching back at the temple again. When God comes into your life, everything changes. And this is that beauty of that change. These guys are bold. They're, they're doing just what they're told, and they're being bold, going right back to where they were arrested because the angel told them to. Now note, the angel did not tell them what was going to happen when they went back to the temple. I don't know if they went back expecting to be re-arrested, or were they expecting that God sent me back here, nothing's going to happen this time. We don't know. And I don't know how I would feel. Angel takes me out of the prison, tells me to go back, and I go back. Would I expect that I'm not going back to the prison again? Probably. My mind on one side would say, why am I going to do this? I'm going to go right back to prison. But at the same time, what are they thinking? We don't know. And I don't know. I don't know what I would be thinking under this circumstance. Okay, God, you told me to go. I guess I'm not going to be arrested, and I'm going to, I get to preach some more. Not what's going to happen. <laughs> Then the captain and the officers brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. All right? The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the high priest are walking a fine line. Now, what are they worried about this? They have the same worry that Pilate did when Jesus stood before him. Pilate was told if there's another riot in Jerusalem you're going to be reassigned and we'll put another officer in there. The high priests were told, keep these people in line. We don't want any more riots. All right? Because whoever is in charge is going to hold them responsible and take them from office. They have a group of men teaching, raising eight to 10,000, maybe more, because we, when we talk about it, it talks about men be, being added following them, being taught in the, in the temple, and they're getting ready to arrest these leaders <laughs> in front of the people that are teaching them. So basically, it kind of went, would you guys please come with us? 
All right? It wasn't we're going to put these handcuffs on you and chains and, we're going to, and shackles and we're going to drag you out of here because they were afraid. They were afraid of a riot amongst the people. And so they come in and basically it was a request, please come with us. You know it was because that's what it said. They took them without violence. No, no chains, no shackles. It's like, uh, come with us. And they followed him. <laughs> so verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in, the, in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. To God, the God of your fathers, our fathers, raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hung on a tree. He hath God exalted with his right hand to be prince and savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things, and so also the Holy Spirit, whom God hath given to them that obey him. What boldness. These men are not shrinking back like they did just a couple months ago. And the high priest brings them back and they're going, did we, or did we not <laughs> command you not to speak in his name? Remember back in cha chapter 3, Peter and John were beat. And then they were released. And what did they do? Thank you, God, we were worthy of suffering for you. And now we've got all of them going back in and still teaching in the name of Jesus. This is very important for us to understand. Rabbis taught all the time in the name of somebody, usually themselves. These guys are teaching in the name of Jesus. And they're having trouble with this. He goes, you all have filled Jerusalem. I would love to have that be our reputation. You have filled Chloride. You have filled White Hills. You have filled Kingman with your doctrine. You have Dolan Springs, Meadview, Golden Valley. You have filled it with this doctrine about Jesus. And remember, this doctrine is very different from what the high priest have been teaching. The high priest teach that you have to offer your sacrifices. You have to give, give offerings. You have to do good works to please God. They're coming, the disciples are coming and saying, all you need is Jesus. Big difference in their message. And this is a problem that is going to happen. It says, you filled Jerusalem with this doctrine, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. Now, I don't know how they could deny that the blood belongs on him, because when Jesus, when Pilate goes, this man is without guilt, they said, let his blood be on us. You know, that's what they said when Jesus was put before them. And Pilate's saying, he's innocent. What do you want me to do with him? And they said, crucify him. And he goes, why? What have they done? And they said, let his blood be on us. And now the high priest and the Sanhedrin are saying, no, we, ne we never had any part of that. You know, kind of, you know, politicians have not changed in, in all the decades and millennia. They say one thing do one thing, then say something totally different and say that they never said what they said, never did what they did. They have never changed. And here we see just that, that evidence. 
you guys are trying to bring this man's blood upon us. Uh, we didn't have anything to do with it. It was that, that huge crowd out there that, that, that begged for his, begged for his uh, blood. Yeah, the, the hand-picked crowd that you put out there and, and egged on, and you went out into the council, and you stood before, before Pilate and, and made the case against him. You know, and yet they're denying that any of that happened. You know, politicians don't change. Peter answered, and the other apostles answered, and said, we ought to obey God rather than man. This is an important statement. We need to always obey God, even if it is contrary to man. And we are getting into a world where it is politically incorrect to state what God says. Christians need to be some of the most politically incorrect people in this world. And I'm not saying be rude and obnoxious about it, but we need to be saying this is what God says. No ifs and ands or buts about it. We are going to stand on God's word. Now, remember, I've said this all the time, and the disciples never said that they didn't have the right to punish them. They go, we have to obey God. And if this government wants to punish us for obeying God, it's within their purview. God has put them in place. Now they will answer to God. The Sanhedrin at this time was going to answer to God for their mistreatment and, and incorrect uh, views of God and, 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 and being politically correct in their day and against God. The world has always had a group of people that are politically incorrect because they follow God. Daniel, the, the, and Darius comes along and, they, and they can't find anything about, his enemies can't find anything to charge him with for the laws. So they go and get a special law so that Daniel can be disobedient in his prayer. You know, hey, king, you know, we're going to puff you up and make you all proud. If you, you know, you're so special, nobody should be asking anything for you, for, of any god or any person except for you, for 30 days. And they set Daniel up. Daniel had two choices, and either one of them looked bad. He could not pray for 30 days, and they had him because now he, wasn't, he was being a hypocrite, and they'd use that against him. He could pray and be charged for violating the king's degree. He chose to pray and violate the king's degree and obey God. And he got thrown into the lion's den, just as the law said. And God protected him. God doesn't always protect us from the government. You know, he can and he might, but he doesn't have to. Many, many people have been martyred over the years. William Tyndale translated the Bible into the common language of the people, English at the time, and they put him, they burned him at the stake. Well, he didn't do the Bible, he just got the New Testament done. His goal was to do the whole New Testament. And he said, God, open their eyes that they may see and that this word will go out. And a hundred years later, King James came along and authorized the Bible to be translated into English and answered of his prayer. But he died. We see this over and over again in, this, in our lifetime. We stand for God, and God can protect us, but doesn't always. And sometimes we're going to face persecution, imprisonment, maybe martyrdom. 
The world is changing all around us, and there may come a time, and even in America, that we may get martyred. We probably are going to be thrown in jail because we're getting to the place where if Christians say what we believe, we are guilty of hate speech crime laws. All right? When we say that homosexuality is a sin, that God created man and woman and not these 31 uh, gender confusion stuff that's going on, you know, and we don't accept all of that because God says he created man and woman and that homosexuality is a sin, fornication is a sin, adultery is a sin. We stand in opposed to the political correct movement. And much of that stuff is going to be able to be charged as hate speech. We need to be ready to say, God, I'm going to stand for you no matter what. And it's going to get difficult. The, the hate speech laws that are being used in America were patterned after Canada's laws. And when they were first coming out, they said, we will never use these against uh, religious speech. Canada was. Canada was and is using their hate speech laws against pastors. And there are pastors in Canada that are in prison because they say homosexuality is a sin. Matter of fact, in American broadcast, if they talk about homosexuality, they have to broadcast something else when they broadcast in Canada. Some past show or something because of the laws in Canada. Now, when they hear them from the United States, you know, it overflows, they can't do anything about that. It's coming. These hate speech laws will be used against us as Christians if we're going to stand for God. It's just a matter of time. How soon? I don't know. But it can change at any time because the laws are in place. And we will be like the disciples. We have to obey God rather than man. And we need to get our place in, in our mind that we're going to obey God even if it means jail or at some point death. Are we willing to obey God? And we need to be putting ourselves in the mindset, God Help me to have the grace to obey you no matter what. And this is important. And then Paul went on, and the, the apostles went on, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you slew and hung on the tree. Okay, they're saying, you're trying to put this man's blood, and he's repeating back, you did it. Now, the one who actually did it was Rome. Rome was the one that actually put him on the cross. But even beyond that, you know, and this is the debate that goes on for all time. Who put Jesus on the cross? Ultimately, the Father did. And it said he pleased him to put the Son on the cross and to punish him. Why? So that we could be saved. Our sin put Jesus on the cross. The Jews acted like the priest for the people and they, put the, and they executed the Passover lamb. And the Romans were the one that actually did the execution. So the Jews were doing their job. The priests of the world, they put the Lamb of God and executed him. Now that doesn't free them of the, the guilt of it, but all of this has a long process. The Romans were the ones that actually executed him. The, high, the, the, pre, the Jews were the ones who put him on the cross as a, as a sacrificed lamb. Our sins put him there, but it was the Father who said the only way that we can bring them into the fellowship with us is for you to die. So the Father is the one that made this decision. Why? Because of man's sin. 
and the Jews getting to be the, the, high, the, the priest the, for executing the sacrifice, and the, the Romans were the actual tool used to kill him. All had their point. Much of anti-Semitism has come down from through the Catholic Church and even from the, Reform, uh, the Reformation period that they blamed the Jews for killing Jesus. And they said because they killed Jesus, God rejected them, and that is not true. God has put them on the shelf during the time of the church. But God is raising the Jews back to position because they are the whole center. After the rapture and the church is taken out, everything focuses back on the Jewish people. 144,000 Jewish evangelists will preach the gospel message during the tribulation. People will come to Christ during that period of time and they will be executed. They will lose their life during that period of time because of all the stuff that's going on. And God will protect the Jews. The remnant of the Jews will be, will be protected because Satan will be trying to destroy them. And again, it'll be a place where God says, you can't destroy my people because they are part of the prophecy of the end times. They are the ones that will be living in Jerusalem during the millennial kingdom and be in the center of the world while what few Gentiles that don't follow the Antichrist will come and worship in Jerusalem and will bring everything to Jerusalem. God is focused, will be focused on Jerusalem again, Israel again. All, he has not gotten rid of them. We cannot look at the Jews and say, well, you, you terrible people, you, did, you, know, you deserve everything that's happened to you. Actually, they deserve none of what's happened to them. Satan hates them because they are the center of all prophetic utterances. From the beginning, they were the, the center of Jesus' birth. If Satan could wipe out the Jews, he could wipe out the Messiah, and there would be no redemption. After his birth, he's trying to wipe them out so that God will be, well, you said you were going to protect them. I'm going to wipe them all out. And he can't get them all wiped out. During the tribulation, he's going to try hard to get them wiped out. And, Jesus will, and God has said, I am going to hide them. And he's going to take a remnant of them and hide them so that Satan cannot touch them. God loves the Jewish people because of his grace and his mercy and his statement to Abraham unconditionally that his people were going to be always in the center of it. So it was an unconditional command and God is going to keep it. The church has had a temporary role and yes, much of the promises of Israel fall on us because we are engrafted into the olive tree. The olive tree represents Israel and we as Gentiles have been engrafted in so that we become part of spiritual Judaism. So we have a great place with God. And all of this is coming down, and we have a special place, and a very unique place. And then if that wasn't enough, he says, you hung him on verse 31. It says, God hath, and him hath God exalted to the right hand to be a prince and savior. These are very specific terms. Savior, the redeemer of the world the Messiah. They're giving him the terms that belong to the Messiah. Basically, he's standing up there, you killed him, God raised him back, and he is the Messiah. What they didn't want to hear. Why? These guys are politicians. 
They don't want a Messiah in their lifetime. Not unless they're the one that picked him, and not unless it's one of them, but to have an upstart from Galilee show up and claim to be Messiah is a big deal to them because he's not one of them. If Jesus had come through the ranks of the Sanhedrin and all of a sudden said, okay, I'm Messiah, they wouldn't have had a problem with it, wouldn't have had as much problem with it. But these are very specific terms. The, he has been exalted of God and he is the Messiah and he came to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. This was the same first part, the same message that John the Baptist preached, repentance. This is not the the message that the Jews taught back then or even today. It wasn't all about repentance. You did good works. You offered your sacrifice. Now, if you went to the Old Testament, you know the sacrifice was also had to have repentance and, and everything behind it, but it had become just an activity, just something you did. And then on your way to the temple, you threw a bunch of money in the offering, the offering and you brought your best lamb, and you made your sacrifices, you did all these good things, you would give to the poor people laying at the gates to the temple. It was a great place to be. The, outside the gate of the temple was a great place because everybody's doing their good work so they can be seen and know that you've been blessed, so you've got some good offerings laying at the temple gate. But all of this works, and they're going, he came to bring repentance that the people needed to repent, turn away from their sins, and forgiveness for sins. Again, this is something they don't understand. They understand having your sins covered for one year. You came to the temple on Yom Kippur, the sacrifice for sin was offered, and you were okay for one more year. You weren't forgiven. Your sins were covered. And Jesus comes along and says, my blood covers the sins of the world completely and you are forgiven by accepting my sacrifice. This is the beauty of the gospel message. Our sins just aren't covered because if they were covered, they could be dug up. They're covered and they're separated as far as the east is from the west. They're in the deepest ocean and you know, they're not to be found. And I love the idea that he separates them as far as the east is from the west. He says, they don't touch. You can't get anywhere near it. And they're saying, God brings repentance and forgiveness. What boldness. These, these guys are standing in front of the leaders of Israel. All right? The Sanhedrin. The 70 top lawyers. The 70 top teachers in the, in the land. And they're teaching them. Not what they want to hear, but they're teaching them. And they're not being silent about it. And then if that wasn't enough, in verse 32 it says, and we are the witnesses of these things. We saw them. Now, what you have to understand, you go back to the law. In court, two witnesses were all you needed if they agreed to, to settle a case. Here's 11 of them saying the same thing. By Jewish law, the case was over. All right? The case they were bringing against them is over because 11 witnesses are giving the same testimony. But it's not going to happen. They're not going to end it here. 
They're going to violate their laws just as they did with Jesus. They held night court with Jesus, which was against the law for the Sanhedrin. Uh, they did not do night courts, especially on capital offenses. Capital offenses, you were supposed to hold the court. You were supposed to go overnight and sentence the person the next day after you had had a chance to think about it overnight. They met in the middle of the night, convicted him, and sentenced him in the same session. All of that was against their rules, against the, the, uh, the law of God. And it says, whom God hath given them that obey him. So the Holy Spirit comes into us. And we, and he goes, we're witnesses, and by the way, the Holy Spirit indwells in us. You know, he could have gone, this is why we're being so bold, because God literally dwells in us. Verse 33. When they had heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, Gamaliel, the doctor of law, had, a, had in reputation among other people and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. And he said unto them, You men of Israel, take heed yourselves in what you intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose Thudas, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, and all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. After this, a man arose up, in, up Judas of Galilee in the days of taxing, and drew away much people after him. And he perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men, let, and let them alone. For if this counsel or work, this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest haply you find yourself even to fight against God. And to him they agreed, and when they had called together the apostles, they beat them and commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer shame for the name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. All right, so here we have, they're looking on how can we discipline these guys? How can we get rid of our problem? These guys are crazy. They keep preaching in the temple. We tell them no. They, they're telling us that we killed Jesus. They're, they're teaching this told doctrine that's not Jewish. And they're doing it under the, under the protection of Judaism because they are Jews. All right? And so they get together, and these words cut them to the heart, convicted them. They knew that they had done wrong. Now, the problem is when you are convicted, you have one of two choices of things that usually happen. You can confess to God that you're guilty and get right with God, or you lash out. These guys are powerful enough to lash out. And they're looking at, how can we kill them? Now remember, they're afraid of the people in the, in, the, in the temple court. If they carry these guys out in chains, they're afraid a riot is going to happen. And they can't wait till, by law, they can't wait till dark to, 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 uh, to take them out and kill them. There has to be witnesses against them. They have to go to the pit and be stoned. And the one who brings the witness against them has to be the first one to throw the, throw the rock, uh, throw the first stone. But to do that, they would have to go through the temple. 
where thousands of people are following them. There are more people following them than there are guards in the temple. This would be a major blow. So they're trying to figure out how can we execute these guys. And Gamaliel, or Gamalia, Gamaliel, <laughs> stands up. Now, you all don't know him. We don't know much about him in the Bible. There's only two places where he's mentioned. This one, and when Paul says that he studied under this man. Right? This is one of the three greatest teachers of all Jewish history. And he stands up before the court. And he makes a statement. And there, there's some cloudy issue on whether he was a Christian. I do not believe he was. I believe he was a pragmatic person. He goes, and he gives them a little history lesson. All right? And he said, and it says he had a reputation, he had a law, people listened to him. So he separated the disciples from him and said, go put them, go, go put them someplace for now while we talk. And he gives them a history lesson. He goes, there was a man named Thaddeus, a Thudas, who boasted himself to be something, and he gathered about 400 men. In other words, we had this troublemaking guy who claimed to, be, claimed to be the Messiah. He died, and his people vanished. Right, so he's giving them a little history lesson. And then he gives them another story about this man named Judas of Galilee. Now, who he is, I don't know, but he says, Galilee, this man brought together a huge army, huge group they caused trouble he died and his people melted away he could have gone to Judas Maccabee who was going who raised up an army against against the Roman people and died and the rebellion fell apart there's numbers of people that have had come up and claimed to be messiahs and leaders and each time when they died their followers hung around. I mean, it wasn't that their followers died out instantly. But eventually, over a period of time, their leader had passed away. They melted away. So he has advice to them. He says, let's be careful. Let's be careful. And I'm sure he's thinking this group is going to be just like the other groups. Their leader has passed away. Yes, they're being a little bit of trouble now because they're still following him. They're excited, and he's kind of he's kind of wondering. You know, they're they're saying their leader is still alive. You know, so he might have a little doubt in his mind. But he's saying, we want to be careful because if these men are, if this work be of men, it will come to naught. He understood. Here's your history. Yeah, and I think he you know there may have been other ones. He probably went through and he listed numbers, and maybe only two of them made it. But he went through a little bit of history and said, "Hey, look at all these guys who claim to be Messiah, and when they died, they were executed. Whatever, their people just drifted away." And he's going. It's only been a month or so. These guys are still kind of excited. They'll they'll just. He fully expected them to drift away, but he also gave a very interesting warning. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it. You know, uh, and lest happily you find yourself fighting against God. What is he thinking about in this second part of the sentence? He's thinking about guys like Moses, Gideon, Jaffa, you know, all the different uh, 
judges that rose to power who came out of nowhere because God called them. And he's probably looking and going, okay, well, I really do believe that this is going to, you know, that this is a man and it's going to fall away for nothing. But he's also looking at the boldness of these guys and the statement that they keep making that Jesus is alive. And he's looking at, we just had to buy off the guards to, buy, to, to keep this lie hidden. I almost think that many of these guys knew something happened. You know, the guards didn't fall asleep. The guards didn't have this happen. They knew the body was resurrected. They didn't want to admit it because if they did, they now had to admit that he is Messiah. They had to admit that they killed the Messiah. They're not ready to do that. This is the problem with many people. And sometimes when we witness to people, we get them where they know they're a sinner. They know they deserve punishment. They know that they need a savior, and yet they reject the savior because of their pride. These guys are standing in their pride. They know something has happened. They still somehow think the disciples have stolen the body, you know, even though they had to pay off the guards to have this happen. So they know something has happened, and they are trying to do a cover-up. And they're still in the middle of the cover-up. And he's saying, if this is of God, we're not going to be able to stop it. And then, very interesting, he says, and if this is of God, you don't want to be going against it, or you'll be fighting God. And this had happened many times over their history, where God raised up a leader, and people fought against that leader, and made it hard on that leader. Many of their kings, like David, had to fight different people rising up to try to take his, take his throne away from them. So Gamaliel is going back through their history and saying, hey, I fully expect this to die. I really, and I think he's really saying, I believe this is going to die, but if it's of God, we can't stop it anyway. So let's just give them space and let it, let it die out. And I don't necessarily, nothing in these words that say I'm a Christian, secret or otherwise. That last statement that maybe this is of God might. And he, in the early 2nd and 3rd century, the, there was a statement from the Catholic Church that he was a Christian and secret follower, just like Nicodemus. But we have no reference that he was ever that way. Uh, but So take it for what it's worth. But he does listen to God as far as that goes. If this is of God, you can't stop it. And this happens oftentimes in churches where we need to say, if this is something God wants to happen, I may not see it, I may not understand it, but if it's of God, I don't want to stand in its way. And it will work out. Whom God calls, he gives the skills and the strength to get, get the job done. If it's not God's call, you can be the best person in the world and you're not going to get it off the ground. And this is what, what he's saying. Don't we, we don't want to be on the wrong side of this battle and just give them time. Give them time to, to drift away. Verse 40, and they all agreed, when, agreed with him. Now this next step is so interesting. They're agreeing to not fight against these guys, not to kill them, but they called the apostles together and beat them. <laughs> okay, we're not going to kill you, but we'll beat you. Their goal 
Well, if this is of men, we're going to beat them so bad that they're not going to, they're not going to want to speak in this name anymore. And that's their goal. We beat them, and, we're going to, and their true colors are going to come out. They're going to get angry. They're going to do something dumb. Rome's going to get after them because they do something dumb. Uh, they're, they're, going to get, they're, they're going to get vicious. They're just going to quit. You know, whatever, whatever their response is, they're going, we're going to beat them. And again, remember, these beatings were not kind beatings. In this case, they were beat by the temple. They, reserved, they would have received 39 lashes with the whip because the, they would be sentenced for 40 and then they would draw one back in mercy. All right? So that they only got 39 beatings with the whip. And so, but these guys were not in good condition when they got done. All right? They were not in good condition. And they also told him, don't speak in the name of Jesus again. All right? Before, they just told him to. You know, they beat Peter and John already and told him not to. They had told him not to, and they came back. And now they beat the apostles and again told him, don't preach this man's name anymore. And I love it. And they departed the, pre- the, the presence of the, the council of the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Rejoicing. Why? Because they were found worthy of suffering. What a different doctrine they followed than we have in our day. We are following the doctrine more like the Jews at their time, more like Job had, more, you know, uh, that if you are godly, you don't suffer. They're saying, oh, thank you, Jesus. We, we are worthy to suffer like you did. They were waiting to die. They were almost looking forward to dying like Jesus did. And they're going, as long as we suffer, we're doing it for God. This is why we need to have a different mindset in the United States. There are many places in this world where the Christian already understands that if you become a Christian, you are going to suffer. At the very least, you're going to lose your property and your business. And in many places in the world, you'll lose your life for being a Christian. And they're rejoicing. They look at a verse like this and say, okay, yes, we're, we're waiting for that. Yes, God, thank you. We are worthy of suffering. You have decided we're worthy of suffering. Do you realize that most of the world looks at America and wonders why our church does not suffer? We had, before the, Rome, before the uh, wall fell for, for Russia, the people in Russia were praying that the American Christians would learn suffering. Because God said, all that follow him will suffer. And they're going, we suffer so bad and we're growing. What is wrong with American Christians? We need to get ready because it's coming. It is coming, and we need to change our theology to understand suffering will come. And I'm not talking about being teased or made fun of or maybe losing a job once in a while because we're talking about true suffering, being thrown into prison, losing our life. It's coming, and we need to be ready for it because that is exactly what the disciples said. Thank God we're worthy of suffering. And suffer shame. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. 
Now, one of the things that really amazes me is how many pastors tell me I do too much teaching up here. <laughs> and I'm going, well, number one, who are you to tell me about anything on my church? And if I didn't have to work a 40-hour day, day somewhere else, we would be meeting every day of the week. Oh, I've been told that many times. That I'm burning you all out because I'm teaching too much. You know, but you know what? I don't make anybody show up. The disciples taught daily. In the temple, in the temple all day long, and in the homes all night long. You know, what should we be doing as a church? And the thing that really bothers me is how many pastors actually believe that you can out over teach your ch- over teach your church. One radio pastor said if you're doing more than one Bible study a week, you're wasting your time because you can't absorb it. Oh, I would hope I never heard that guy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know who it was. It was a long time ago. I'm like, what? <laughs> but you know, yes, it may overload at some point. But you know what? The more we hear and the more it's repeated, the more it sticks in, and it becomes real. And I. I came from a church where I spent most of, you know, off and on, most of my life and time, they met seven days a week, three and four times a day. And the same pastor taught most of the lessons. They had other pastors that came in and did other messages sometimes. But, you know, and that was a church that if you had a Bible, a, a birthday party, you'd have a Bible study where a group of Christians came together, God's word would be taught. Maybe not even officially. And it might just be, what did God show you this week? That is one of the questions I love for people. What has God showed you this week? And have people ready to say, oh man, God, this is what God told me. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be big. But what is God showing you in the word of God? It's really important. And every one of you have shared various times about what it is God is showing you, and it's wonderful. I want that to take over our entire church that everybody's coming in just can't wait to share what God has shown them this week or since the day before or whatever it might be. I, I love it because I get to, pa- I'm the pastor, I get to teach it all the time, but you know, it is fun for me to look and say, God, this is wonderful, this is, this is great. And I get to share all the time because that's what I get you know, paid to and I'd be doing it even if I didn't get paid because that's who I am. I've always been teaching. It's only fun now that I get to teach five and six times a week. You know, it's, it's wonderful. And I want to, and like I said, if God raised it up so I did not have to work, I'd be here at least six times a week, if not all seven, because I want to lift God's word up and feed people daily in the temple and in the homes. And this literally, and you've got to understand, the temple was open during the daylight times. They met in the temple. Then they went to people's homes and taught. Okay, you didn't get enough at the temple? We're going to... Oh, you were working? We're going to teach you in home as well. We need to be ready to share Christ and share what we learn and share and be excited. I'm looking forward to the day when every single person in our church just can't wait to get to church to share. Wow, you know, I read, I read and this is what God showed me. I look forward to that day when that is part of our church's DNA.
but that's just as good. It may not be what you learned, but what did God do for you is just as powerful. I, God has told us to boast in him. Exalt him. If it's something he's done in your life, lift him up. It's not bragging. But it's not, I mean, it's not bragging and boasting if we're, unless we're lifting ourselves up. But when we're lifting up what God has done, he wants to be exalted. He wants to be lifted up. And Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. And, when, and people are looking for a God who's real, who teaches us and changes our life and provides for us. Because that's what they're looking for. They're looking for something that is real. We as Christians need to be lifting up. We have a real God who sees us, cares for us, meets our needs, and takes care of all of it. And we need to lift him up because that's what people are looking for. I can't tell you how many times I talk to people and I'm, I'm asking them about what they know about Jesus and they'll go, well, I go to church once a while or I read my Bible. I'm a pretty good person. I'm going, that is not what I asked you. I asked you what your relationship is with Jesus because that's where I'm going anymore. I don't care if they go to church. I don't care if they read their Bible every day. I don't care if they pray every day. I want to know what people's relationship is with the God of the universe and do they know him. And I've had several conversations where somebody says, well, I know I should go to church because it's a really good thing. I'm going, I'm not asking you to go to church. I'm not saying you even should go to church. You need to know Jesus. Once you know Jesus, you will go to church. All right? You will want to be with his people. You will want to be in his word. You will want to pray when you know him. But the rest of all of that stuff is not relevant until you know him. And this is the important part. We need to lift him up and exalt him and praise him and let people know we have a God that meets our needs. We have a God that brings us peace. We have a God that helps us when we're in all of a headaches and unsound minds that we have because most people in this world have unsound minds they don't know right from wrong they don't understand good and good and bad they don't understand anything and even before we were saved we justified what we did wrong well you know if it just wasn't for these people pushing all my buttons I would not have acted that way you know if it wasn't for you know the way I think or the way I was raised, I wouldn't have reacted that way. If it wasn't for my Irish blood in me, I wouldn't have gotten so mad. We excuse everything because that's who we are, because we don't want to take blame. Our pride won't let us take blame. When we get to know God and know that he is the one, then we can humble ourselves. You know, man, I blew it and God really gave me a blessing and forgave me. And people are going, What? You're admitting that you're wrong and you still have God who follows you and allows you to keeps you. We have a beautiful God that loves us who is looking for us to repent and confess our sins and he still loves us. Even when we do wrong. For Christ came not into this world to condemn us, the world, but, but through him they might be saved. He didn't come to condemn. 
because we were condemned already. Jesus didn't have to come and condemn us. We're guilty. And we know that we are guilty without Jesus. He didn't have to come to condemn. He says, I'm coming to redeem you. I'm coming to buy you back. I'm holding out a gift. Just come to me. And this is the beauty. A free gift of eternal life. And a peace that passes understanding and the fruit of the Spirit and the joy that God gives us and the strength that he gives us so that when we are beat, when we are are facing all this criticism, we can say, thank God I'm worthy of suffering. Study of Job has that very ending. Job comes to the end. He doesn't use exactly these words, but when he comes to the end, he basically says, thank you, God, that I was worthy and asks for forgiveness. No, Job is not thinking of that at the beginning. At the beginning of the book, he does not think that. Because God has to break his self-righteousness. He is more on the lines of the scribes and Pharisees. I did good. I deserve to be, I deserve good. Right. You know, if all I'm going to do is go through hardship, why am I being good? And this is the important thing. And this is the prosperity gospel. He believed in the prosperity gospel. We call it the prosperity gospel now. I give God $100, he gives me back 1000 I give him 1000 he gives me back 10000 Now, And that's taught by many pastors. Seed money, give the money. That is not what God talks about. Now, when we give him, he blesses. And oftentimes it comes back in the form of money or savings or blessings. But it doesn't, it's not a promise that God says just because you do it, you're going to be receiving money back. But when we have the peace of God, knowing that he's in control, we go, God, thank you. And then we start seeing the miracles of God in our life when we just trust God. Because if God gave most of us a lot of money, we wouldn't be trusting in him. We'd be trusting in our money. And God says, I want you trusting in me. God always gives us what we need at the last possible moment. When I was living on faith, the bill would be due the next day, and that would be the day that I got my the money, oftentimes the day of the bill, <laughs> unless it needed some time to transfer, and then he gave it to me in time to get the transfer. God is always on time. Rarely is he early, and he's never late. He is on time with our blessings. Now, if we reject him and we're trying to do it our own way, he'll step back and say, okay, you want to do it your way? You know, I'll let you do it your way, and then he will be late. But he's not late because he's late. He's late because we did not ask him. He's late because we weren't looking for his answer. He is not late. We are late. But when we submit to him and look for him for answers, he will show up on time. Last thing, I'm just, you know, the greatest story I love is George Mueller. One of the stories, you know, it's breakfast time. No food. He gets the children together and he starts praying, thank you for the food we're about to eat. No food in, no food in the orphanage, not even on, not on the table. Gets a knock on the door and it's the baker saying, God woke me up and told me to bake these breads for, you, for, the, children, for the children. Drops off the bread. While he's dropping off the bread, the, gets another knock on the door and the milk truck is out there. It broke down in front of the orphanage. He says, well, rather than pouring it out in the street, could the children use some milk? 
You want to talk about on time. Yeah. That one was very close to being late. <laughs> They're sitting there ready for breakfast. <laughs> And God gives them breakfast while they're sitting there. God is always on time with his blessings. We just need to be patient with him. When it looks like he's going to be late, we need to be patient and say, God, you will meet my needs. All things work together for good, and those we have to keep in mind that he will work it out. Maybe not in our time, maybe not the way we wanted it, you know, George Mueller staff's going, we can't do anything. We need, we need food on this table. How are we going to do this? They're going, we should go out and beg money from the businesses. We've got to do something. And he's saying, no, nope, God will provide, and he will provide when it's time for breakfast. Well, same thing as Jesus feeding the, feeding the 5,000 and the 3,000 with just a few fish and bread. You know, and he does it over and over again. We've seen it on our end-of-the-month dinners on occasions where I know there wasn't enough food to feed everybody, and everybody left full, and some people left with extra food. You know, and I'm looking at the food, I'm going, all right, God, did you make them not hungry? And I don't think that's the case. He just multiplied food. And I still think he does it. There's times I know that he has done it here, and I know that he's done it in my past when our family would invite 15, 20 people, and we'd only have a five-quart pot of of soup or gumbo and, and, a, and a pot of rice and it would last for all of us through seconds and for some guys thirds and there would still be food God still does the miracles he still provides and we just need to be ready to watch and see him and wait for him and not panic because if we panic and try to do it our way God will step back and say okay you want to do it your way I had, I had plans for you I had mir a miraculous provision for you, but you want to do it your way, go ahead. You, you, you people stretch these uh, five loaves and three fish and feed, feed 5,000 people. You know, um, but if you leave it to me, I'll feed them. And you know, we need to be ready just to say, God, it's in your hands. Too many times we try to take care of things ourselves. We try to get revenge. We try to defend ourselves. We try to provide. And we get all panicky and try to do it ourselves. And God's very much a gentleman. He says, if you want to try to take care of it, be my guest. I'll just stand back and watch you fall flat on your face, have trouble. And then I'll still he'll still provide after we've fallen on our face, after we've gone hungry for a while. And then he'll turn around and provide. But when we just learn to trust him, and it's not easy to learn to trust him. It takes a long time to learn, and it takes lots of challenges. George Mueller did not learn the day of the breakfast to trust God for breakfast. He had been trusting God all along for that. And that was just one of the great miracles that he gets really well known for. There were other miracles in his lifetime. That's the biggest one. That's the biggest one that everybody knows about. The faith of standing there and praying for breakfast when it's not on the table, it's not in the kitchen, there's not a truck delivering it that you know of, and you say, thank you, God, for the breakfast we're getting ready to eat. And it shows up at the door. Now, if, you have, or if you're able to provide for yourself and don't, then God's not going to take care of you. But George Mueller had confidence in God. He had a garden. He had lots of ways to get this stuff, but he goes... If I've done everything I can and it's not there, God has got to provide. That needs to be our attitude. 
And one of the problems in America is we don't have that attitude. God didn't, God, I need this. Uh, I'll just go out and get a loan. I'll provide for myself. American Christians are up to their eyeballs in debt because they just run out and get a loan for what they need rather than wait for God to provide. You know, and I've heard many pastors give the story about God telling them no, they go out and do something anyway, and it ends up being the worst decision they've made, and I've done it. I've gone out and I've bought a car when God said don't do it and had nothing but problems with that car. Finally get rid of the piece of junk that has cost me thousands of dollars and then God will turn around and give me a car. You know, and sometimes when you talk to the person, and I've heard this story more than once, the person says, well, I was ready to give it to you a year ago and you had a car and God told me to hold on to it. You know, because you were in the process of learning. They didn't, they're not going to go that far, but you were in the process of learning. And God says, all right, I've still got your blessing out there. When you're tired of playing your games, I'll give you the blessing that I had for you. And we want to be very careful in trusting God and learn to be able to seek him and stand for him and thank God when we do have suffering. And you know, one of the things that I'm getting more and more into my mind, we need to be ready. Suffering is just around the corner. I really, truly believe it. And I'm not trying to be a prophet, but I really believe suffering for American Christians is just around the corner. And we're not talking about simple stuff. We're talking about jail. We're talking about the possibility of dying because of our Christian faith. Be ready. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love, your kindness. Lord, we ask you to prepare our hearts, prepare those who listen to this message's heart for the suffering that is coming, that we are be ready to suffer for you and do it thankfully and with great joy. And we ask you to go with us as we go about your, your business. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.